0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes.
1: The invention of the internet brought our world many, many great things. It was the future, changing the way we lived life on a day-to-day basis. And the 21st century's first serial killer was perhaps appropriately also considered to be the internet's first serial killer. In many ways, this offender was both an unusual serial killer and yet, at the same time, the prototypical serial killer. A person who outwardly presented the image of a pillar of the community, but who for years had been preying on some of society's more vulnerable people, whose life circumstances made them prime targets for a predator. And he used the internet to do this. Something that revolutionized our world had now also become a tool for the sick and twisted. And that's what we will be talking about in this week's Binged series. We begin our story in March of the year 2000. A new century and a new millennium were beginning. And the big Y2K scare to everyone's relief was totally overblown. But up in Monroe, Michigan, about 40 miles south of Detroit, a woman named Carolyn Troughton was dealing with her own very personal fears. She worried about the well-being of her 27-year-old daughter, Suzette. Only a few weeks earlier, Suzette had moved away from her hometown to begin an exciting new job down near Kansas City. Before this, up in Michigan, where she'd spent her entire life, 27 year old Suzette had been working as a nurse, providing end of life care for the terminally ill. And not only did this work barely pay enough for Suzette to get ahead financially, but it was taking a toll on her mind and body, aging her beyond her years. So when a wealthy, middle aged businessman in Kansas, a man she'd met online, offered her the opportunity of a lifetime traveling the world with him while helping care for his elderly, father she jumped at it it was a job that paid nearly three times what she had been making and the benefits it offered were unheard of a vehicle an apartment world travel all expenses paid some of her friends were concerned that this opportunity sounded too good to be true even her boss asked her are you sure this is on the up and up but how could Suzette pass this opportunity up sure she had met him on the internet something that was extremely new in 2000 but she trusted him. She was going to take the job. So the man, who called himself JR, flew Suzette out to Kansas to meet him and see for herself that he was the real deal. When she arrived, he picked her up from the airport in a chauffeured limousine, put her up at an extended stay hotel, showed her around town, And she returned home to Michigan feeling assured that Jr. was legitimate. And so was this job offering. So she packed up her Pekingese dogs, Harry and Pika, her best friends in the whole entire world. She loaded up a U-Haul truck with everything she owned, and she set out to Kansas. But then... After a few weeks in Kansas, her communication with friends and family back home suddenly became strange. Her emails didn't sound like her. It sounded like someone else was writing them. And Suzette kept misspelling the name of one of her dogs, which she would never do. Carolyn, her mother, also received a letter in the mail, which on surface also appeared to be from her daughter. And it bore her daughter's signature, but it was typewritten and written in a style, again, that just didn't feel like Suzette. Carolyn and the rest of Suzette's family had begun to feel like something was radically wrong. Like their daughter, friend, and loved one had run away to Kansas chasing this dream job, and now weeks later, Something was off. So they phoned the police down in Kansas. Suzette's sister explained to Officer Warren Neff of the Overland Park Police how Suzette had relocated to the Kansas City area to take a job with a wealthy businessman. A man she called JR, but his name was John Robinson. And now it felt like someone was impersonating her sister in emails and in letters. Officer Neff ran this information to his supervisors, Lieutenant Dan Mintier and Sergeant Marty Ingram. And as it turned out, this wasn't the first time they were hearing about this man, John Robinson. Police knew the name John Robinson very well. This wasn't the first worried call they had received after someone's daughter or friend became involved with him. In 1985, 15 years earlier, a young mother named Lisa Stacy had disappeared along with her four month old daughter after connecting with John Robinson through an outreach program for vulnerable young mothers. Another young woman who Robinson had promised to help. No trace of Lisa and her baby was ever found, and the case went cold soon after. Fast forward 15 years when they get this call from a worried Carolyn about her daughter, Suzette, who had run off with John Robinson. Lieutenant Mintier and Sergeant Ingram felt that Suzette Troughton was no run-of-the-mill missing persons case and wasted no time beginning their investigation. Maybe this was the spark they needed to finally crack down on Robinson. Suzette's family had told the police in Kansas how Suzette wouldn't go anywhere without her Pekingese pups, Harry and Pika. So the investigation started there. Detectives began calling local animal shelters and kennels around town. And soon they hit pay dirt Two well cared for Pekingese dogs without tags or collars, had been found wandering behind a trailer home in Olathe and were quickly adopted out to separate homes. The detectives went to one of these homes where the dog was adopted and once inside, they called out Harry Pika, maybe these were Suzette's dogs. And if they were, it would confirm everyone's fears that Suzette was really in trouble the little dog came running with its tail wagging. That's so sad. Not only had these dogs been separated from their owner, but they too had been separated from each other. And here's the thing. The person who had found the dogs and first reported them to animal control was a woman named Nancy Robinson, John Robinson's wife. Yes, he was married. What is it with these guys? At this point, the detectives called Carolyn Troughton back to share the news. And that's when Carolyn realized, her daughter, Suzette, was probably dead. If Lisa Stacy went missing with this guy 15 years earlier and has never been seen again, where did that leave her daughter? A recording device was placed on Carolyn's phone by police after they asked her to try and get a hold of John Robinson so they could listen in. Suzette had given her mother his number before leaving to Kansas. Carolyn called John Robinson to ask about her daughter's whereabouts. Yeah, yeah, she had received supposed letters and emails from her daughter, but she needed to actually speak to her. When John Robinson was confronted with this while police were listening in, he claimed that Suzette wasn't actually with him anymore. He claims she had decided not to take the job and instead had met some other man named Jim Turner and left to travel the world with him. But that's not like Susie, Carolyn told him. She always calls. She wouldn't do this. From what I understand, he said, they're on a boat somewhere. It's kind of hard to call. Carolyn told him she was getting nervous because his story wasn't making sense and she was thinking of going to the police. Why? He asked in a mousy high pitch. He tried to talk her down from it. I wouldn't get nervous, hon, he said, sounding rather nervous himself. She's a big girl. Carolyn paused. That verbiage that John Robinson had just used on the phone was very similar to language that was used in one of those emails supposedly written by Suzette to her mother. Don't worry about me, the email had ended. I'm a big girl, bigger than I should be. Now, Suzette had been struggling with a weight problem, and when Carolyn originally read this email from her daughter, she was confused. And now hearing Robinson say almost the same thing to her over the phone, she was sick. If Robinson was impersonating her daughter in the letters to her loved ones, he took it upon himself to comment on her weight. What a total dirtbag. And Robinson was indeed a consummate dirtbag going way, way back. John Edward Robinson was born on December 27, 1943 in Cicero, Illinois, a city just outside of Chicago that had been home base for notorious gangster Al Capone during the height of his criminal empire. And though Capone was a racketeer and a murderer, his legacy in Cicero was kind of a mixed bag. Many of the city's working class residents, demoralized by how the American dream had abandoned them and by the corrupt local politicians, actually continued to look up to Al Capone even years after he went to prison for tax evasion in 1932. And John Robinson, the subject of our story, who was born the same year that Capone died, actually grew up in the shadow of Al Capone's legacy and aspired to be like him. But as a child, few would have guessed it. John had attended the prestigious Quigley Preparatory Seminary and was an Eagle Scout and a troop leader who made local headlines in 1957 when he was sent to England to sing before Queen Elizabeth, leading a chorus of Boy Scouts. The newspaper stories featured a photo of the young boy being kissed on the cheek by Judy Garland backstage in London. It was a story that, at one point, shared the front page with a headline story about none other than Ed Gein, the notorious serial killer who made masks of his victim's skin and inspired both Psycho and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was purely coincidence, but in hindsight, an ominous one. And despite the promise that young Robinson showed, at least on the surface, he was a mediocre student graduating with average grades and actually dropping out of college after only two years as he got older. This was the beginning of his downfall. If you aren't counting his obsession with Al Capone as a teenager, he had been studying to become an x-ray technician And he certainly didn't let not finishing school stop him from becoming one. After dropping out of college, John Robinson began lying about his academic record and projecting a confident and outgoing personality. Because of this, he was easily able to secure a job in a Chicago hospital working in the x-ray department. But it wasn't long after he was hired that he was then fired when it was discovered that he was embezzling. So he was embezzling from the same unsuspecting marks he had conned into hiring him. What an upstanding guy. He only managed to escape criminal charges for this by begging his employers not to call the police and offering to pay restitution, which he did. But by this time he had a wife and a young child and he needed to keep the income flowing so he relocated with his new family to kansas city and he landed another job as an x-ray technician again offering up bogus credentials forged letters of recommendation and lining his office wall with phony certificates he had printed himself which at first no one questioned but when john robinson proved to be incompetent at his job I mean, hello, he never even studied any of this. His coworkers began wondering what was up with this guy. He carried himself with the poise and confidence of a doctor, but then he couldn't seem to do his job right. In fact, he was almost more interested in having affairs with his female coworkers and even hitting on patients than he actually was in his work. He was soon fired from this job, but had no trouble finding another one. This time, working in an x-ray laboratory run by former President Harry Truman's personal physician, Dr. Wallace H. Graham. And Dr. Graham was charmed by John Robinson. Robinson left a strong first impression, but he turned out to be a lazy employee just like all his past jobs. Clumsy and careless, often rushing through important lab work, and making numerous mistakes along the way. And then, around the holiday season in 1966, Dr. Graham's practice began somehow hemorrhaging money, despite their appointment calendar being as booked as ever. In fact, the office was losing so much money, it couldn't even pay out that year's holiday bonuses. Everyone in the office was filling the pinch. Everyone except John Robinson, that is. Robinson was busy buying property, vehicles, and horses for his wife and himself. And he wasn't shy about boasting about all of his new acquisitions around the office. Don't you just love people like that who flaunt their luxuries and material goods while everyone else around them is suffering? Eventually, it was figured out that the practice had inexplicably lost between $100,000 and $300,000. And then the mystery was solved. Dr. Graham's bookkeeper discovered that John Robinson had been embezzling from the practice. So Dr. Graham confronted Robinson and Robinson claimed he wasn't stealing at all. He was only transferring funds. I mean, okay, that's one way to spin embezzling for sure. Dr. Graham didn't buy it, though, and when Robinson then offered to repay all of the missing funds, a tactic that had been successful for him in the past, Dr. Graham wasn't hearing it. The doctor called the police, and Robinson left the Fountain Plaza X-ray laboratory that day in handcuffs. It all happened so abruptly that Robinson didn't even have time to collect his things, including that stack of blank certificates he'd hidden in the darkroom, which was later found by his successor. Robinson was charged with a felony, theft by deceit. And this, for which he received three years probation, would be the first in a seemingly endless sequence of criminal charges John Robinson would collect over the next two decades. All the while, he and his wife had three more children and they moved into an even bigger house and then an even bigger luxury ranch style house, maintaining this appearance of upward mobility. This is a guy who took fake it till you make it to the next level. And John Robinson would spend the entire decade of the 1970s on probation after being caught stealing from every employer who hired him. Eventually, Robinson decided to go into business for himself. And of course, none of the business that he conducted was honest. He would lure in naive investors using the same ruses, forged letters of recommendation, BS credentials that he had used to secure all those other jobs that he ended up embezzling from. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by so quickly. So far in 2024, we started our first live tour and have a great new show on Twitch, but there's still so much more we wanna do before the year is over. So when life goes so fast, it's important to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you take stock of your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you guys know, therapy has made such a huge impact in my life. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, maybe just how to set boundaries. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com dark today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp,
0: hel pcom dark. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. Talk to your local agent today. And with this, the word about shady John Robinson was starting
1: to go around. And he was a kind of establishing himself as a relentless con man. And despite being thwarted with every new scheme he came up with, None of this deterred him. He just kept charging ahead, starting another, starting another. He just didn't know how to live any other way. Meanwhile, he cultivated this public image of himself as the ultimate family man and pillar of the community. He became president of his homeowners association, which in my opinion is a big red flag. He was a scoutmaster for the local Eagle Scouts, a Sunday school teacher and an elder at the local Presbyterian church, despite having been raised Catholic. He was leader of the local volleyball referees the t-ball coach and at christmas time he'd even dress up as santa claus and hand out presents to his neighbors but things started to sour for him in his community where he governed the homeowners association with a sadistic iron fist there was one neighbor whose house was struck by lightning and burned to the ground when the woman rebuilt her house and had the audacity to use fire resistant roof shingles instead of the wooden shingles approved by the association robinson took her to court Robinson's dog was malnourished and he neglected the horses he kept in the backyard stable to the point They became emaciated and the humane society were called out to investigate His neighbors could often hear him screaming at his family or berating them well into the night It was even rumored that he battered his wife And by her mid-30s, his wife, Nancy Robinson, had become a chain-smoking shell of her former self She'd gotten wise to her husband's extramarital affairs and would give him the boot from time to time, but she'd always take him back, usually because the kids. They had four of them. They would beg her to. And though Nancy was wrestling with filing for divorce, she continued to tough it out for the sake of the children and with the hope that things might someday get better. And maybe they were about to. In 1979, John Robinson was finally released from federal probation. He then got a job as an employee relations manager with a food manufacturer, but he wasted almost no time returning to his old bag of tricks, having affairs with co-workers and embezzling. Robinson consequently lost his job and racked up new felony charges as well as a civil suit from his former employer that he settled for $50,000 in restitution. On the criminal charges, he pled guilty and was sentenced to 60 days in jail. Shock time, they call it. But Robinson looked at this as an adventure. While he was behind bars, his wife, Nancy, finally filed for divorce. Between his going to jail and the affair that preceded it, she'd had just about enough. But then after his release, the couple went to marriage counseling and decided to stay together. In the summer of 81, there were other things going on with John Robinson. More secrets that he kept from his wife and family. He'd long had an appetite for rough sex and sadomasochism, and now he was beginning to really explore that. John Robinson became involved in the Kansas City chapter of something called the International Council of Masters, which was an underground sex cult literally apparently these things do exist and this one had roots dating all the way back to 1921 when a group of six wealthy london professionals convened in a warehouse basement wearing hooded robes each accompanied by a female sex slave bound by chains whose role was to completely submit to her master the group meetings were held in secrecy and each member was strictly prohibited from talking about the group with anyone on the outside of it. New male recruits had to be heavily vetted and proven to be trustworthy and fully committed. Women who were brought into the group as slaves were sometimes done so against their will. Over time, the group scattered its spores across the world, and new chapters sprouted up everywhere, even in middle America. And when Robinson joined the Kansas City chapter of the International Council of Masters, He quickly rose the ranks as he was highly successful at bringing new female slaves into the group, slaves whose purpose was to be beaten, tortured, or raped. And he rose to a prominent position within the council, earning the title of slave master, One former female member of the group told Kansas City's NBC affiliate that she was sexually mutilated for attempting to escape. She talked about how Robinson would come into meetings leading a chain of three or more bound collared women, and the women would usually appear drugged or disoriented. She personally witnessed one of the slaves attempting to flee from Robinson, and this led to that woman being physically restrained. Outside of his other activities, Robinson began leasing a duplex in his company's name at this point, and he kind of turned it into a bordello. He became a self-styled pimp and would recruit vulnerable, destitute young women without strong support systems. And he wasn't working alone. He had partners and accomplices in these activities. He had hired a veteran sex worker to manage this bordello for him. And it seems like John Robinson had found his new way to make money. But this hadn't stopped him from his old con man ways. Around this time, he was also posing as a divorce attorney with one aspiring divorcee providing Robinson with her marriage license and birth certificate and payment before Robinson went incommunicado and her divorce was never finalized. This would lead to one of several investigations that would eventually land Robinson in prison. But that would take several years. In the meantime, he even pretended to be a film fancier and went around telling people he'd personally raised the money to make First Blood, the Sylvester Stallone blockbuster that kicked off the Rambo series. But then in 1984, John Robinson stepped into the role of adoption broker when his brother Don and his wife shared that they had been struggling to conceive a child. John told Don that he knew an adoption attorney and could find him a baby by the end of the year. So Don, his brother, paid him $2,500 only for the baby to never materialize due to one delay after the next. He always had some excuse or another. So literally now he's scamming his own brother. Don leaned on his brother for updates, and that's when John Robinson asked for another three grand. And then John Robinson began reaching out to Kansas City charities and support groups for vulnerable young mothers, posing as a representative of the First Presbyterian Church of Stanley. He would tell these charities that he'd formed a program to help struggling young mothers get back on their feet by providing them housing, a monthly stipend, and access to job opportunities. It was only then that social workers at the Truman Medical Center connected Robinson with a 19-year-old mother who was living at a battered women's shelter, where Robinson showed up using the name John Osborne and presented himself to the young woman whose name was Lisa Stacy. This is the Lisa Stacy that we introduced earlier in the story. Lisa was in a terrible position. Her husband and the father of her four-month-old daughter, Tiffany, had just walked out on her after a blowout fight during the newlywed couple's first Christmas together. He had re-enlisted in the Navy and moved out of state. Now, Lisa had no means of support other than her sister-in-law. This is her husband's sister, who was helping her during these circumstances by babysitting little Tiffany. Now, when John Osborne, who was really John Robinson, learned about Lisa's situation, he said he was a businessman and a philanthropist who was affiliated with something called the Kansas City Outreach Program, which would put Lisa up at a duplex, enroll her in a GED program and set her up with a job. And there was a training program in Chicago, he said, that would be perfect for her. John Osborne appeared to be the ray of hope that Lisa in her desperate situation had been waiting for. He moved her out of the shelter and into a room at the Roadway Inn in Overland Park, which was hardly the duplex that he'd first mentioned. And while he claimed to be finalizing travel plans for her and her baby, he gave her four blank sheets of paper to sign. And he then asked her to write down on a separate piece of paper, the names and addresses of her family members. When Lisa asked him what this was all for, he told her it was so he could forward them her contact information once she relocated to Chicago. It was just a formality, he told her. The next morning, it was January 9th, 1985. Lisa drove through a blizzard to her sister-in-law's house to check on baby Tiffany, whom her sister-in-law had been watching. When Lisa told her all about this John Osborne character and his outreach program, The sister-in-law was wary, and then later in the afternoon, Lisa called the roadway Inn's front desk to check her messages, and that's when she learned that John Osborne had been frantically looking for her, calling around town in a panic, trying to find out her whereabouts. Lisa left her number for Osborne to call her back, and he did so within minutes and insisted that he come pick up Lisa and the baby and take them back to the motel. Lisa gave John the address to her sister-in-law's house. And after they hung up, she told her sister-in-law she was having second thoughts, which her sister-in-law found pretty understandable because she herself was pretty unnerved by everything that was happening. And then half an hour later, there was a knock on the door. They opened the door and saw John Osborne standing there wearing a long brown trench coat and covered in snow because for whatever reason, he had parked his car down the street instead of in front of the house, so he just walked through this ridiculous blizzard. And now he was here to collect Lisa and baby Tiffany. His focus on getting Lisa and her baby out of the house was so narrow and intense that he didn't even acknowledge the presence of Lisa's sister-in-law, who now had this really uneasy feeling in the pit of her stomach. But the sister-in-law just felt steamrolled by this man. This man whose eyes were so hard and cold that she was afraid of him and afraid to intervene. The man then left with Lisa and baby Tiffany, trudging through the snowstorm, down the street, back to his vehicle, leaving behind Lisa's car with diapers, toys, and baby food in the trunk. And that was the last that anyone saw Lisa Stacy or her baby Tiffany. Her family, of course, did some probing and they discovered that the motel room had been paid for by a man using the name John Osborne with a company card for a management consulting firm called Equitu. This was John Robinson's fraudulent company. And they further learned that the president of that company was John Robinson. So then one of Lisa's family members went to the Equitu offices to confront John Robinson. And Robinson became irate and forcibly removed him from the building. It wasn't long after that, after John Robinson had learned that Lisa's family was looking for her, that the family began receiving letters purportedly from Lisa Stacy, their loved one, letters that were typewritten and hand-signed. Now, for one thing, Lisa Stacy didn't even know how to type, but also the letters didn't sound like Lisa. And in the letters, she claimed that she'd left Kansas City to, quote, make a new life for herself and her baby. It just didn't make sense. Lisa's family went to the police, and the police paid a visit to Robinson's office to question him. Robinson told the police that a man named Bill had appeared at his offices to inform him that Lisa and her baby were moving to Colorado with him to start a new life. And that's all he knew without anywhere else for the investigation to go. Police were satisfied with this explanation and stopped investigating Lisa as a missing person. But Steve Hames, Robinson's probation officer knew something more sinister was going on only four months before Lisa disappeared. Another 19-year-old woman named Paula Godfrey disappeared under very similar circumstances shortly after taking a job with Robinson. Paula was a recent graduate from Olathe High School, where she'd been an honors student and contributor to the Campus Literary Magazine. She was a talented figure skater angling for a spot on the Walt Disney World on Ice show. But in the meantime, she needed a job any kind of job to generate some income. So she opened the newspaper classified ads and that's when she saw an ad seeking a sales representative for a management consulting firm called Equitu. She met with John Robinson who hired her and began grooming her. It seemed for bigger and better things. He told this young girl he was going to enroll her in a training course in San Antonio, Texas and fly her out with a handful of other new hires. On September 1st, 1984, Robinson picked up Paula from her mother's house to drive her to the airport. And that was the last anyone would ever see or hear from her again. When Paula didn't call after her scheduled arrival, her family became concerned. And after four days of no contact, her father flew to San Antonio and discovered that Paula had never even checked into her hotel. When Paula's dad returned to Kansas, he filed a missing persons report and hired a private investigator. Then he showed up at the Equitu offices to confront John Robinson, another family confronting him. And Robinson seemed unfazed and told the young woman's father he hadn't heard from her since she'd left for training and he had no idea where she was. Paula's father warned Robinson that if he didn't hear from his daughter by the end of the week, Robinson would have a serious problem on his hands. And then... Three days later, Paula's family received a brief, handwritten note, seemingly from Paula, assuring them everything was okay. See the pattern here? But the envelope was postmarked Kansas City, and it just didn't feel right to Paula's dad, who took the letter and his complaint to the Overland Park Police. The police reached out to John Robinson, who said he knew nothing about Paula Godfrey and wouldn't be able to help out. I'm just a businessman, he told them. Shortly after that interview, a second handwritten letter from Paula was sent, this time to the Overland Park Police Department. In that letter, Paula expressed how grateful she was for John Robinson's help and reported that she was now living in the western part of the state and had no desire to be in contact with her family. Paula's father didn't believe the handwriting to be Paula's, and the letter was full of profanities, which was uncharacteristic of his daughter. But the Overland Park Police decided it was authentic and the missing woman just wanted to be left alone. And that was the end of their investigation.
0: Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
1: This is now Paula, who went missing with Robinson in 1984. Lisa, who went missing with Robinson a year later in 1985. And then Suzette, who we started our episode off with, would go missing 15 years later with the same man. After Steve Hames, Robinson's probation officer, became aware of Lisa Stacy's disappearance and the fact that he knew Paula had gone missing after connecting with John Robinson just a year earlier, the FBI joined Hames in an effort to shut Robinson down and put him behind bars. The Secret Service, independently, had already been investigating him and an accomplice for forging signatures on government checks. Robinson would finally be sent to prison for an extended period of time for this, not for the girl's disappearance." But even getting arrested didn't stop John Robinson from being tied to missing women because while he was awaiting trial before he was incarcerated, another woman disappeared after taking a job with his company. 27 year old Catherine Clampitt was a young, financially strapped single mother who was new in town with limited resources and beset by substance abuse issues. She applied for a job at Equitu and got the position and as we know, would disappear soon after. And Catherine was forgotten about by everyone but her family as Robinson in summer of 1987 began serving what would amount to a six year prison term. And while he was in prison, Robinson was honing his computer skills. And he took a job in the prison library where he worked alongside a woman named Beverly Bonner, who happened to be the wife of the prison physician. But also, Beverly and John Robinson were already familiar with each other. They'd worked together two decades earlier when Robinson was employed as a systems analyst, which he ended up ripping off by stealing thousands of postage stamps from. The two became friends while Robinson was in prison, and then their friendship evolved into something more. Once Robinson was released from prison in 1993, Beverly left her husband, the prison doctor, for John Robinson, and she began working for a new company that he founded. And it was around this time that Beverly Bonner's family stopped seeing her. Although her ex-husband's monthly $1,000 alimony checks continued to be cashed. And her family continued receiving letters, supposedly from Beverly, for the next several years. But she had failed to show for her brother's wedding in 1995, and she also didn't attend the funeral of her eldest son, who died later that year, which was very unlike her. But just like Lisa, Paula, and Catherine, who had come before her, she was never seen again after becoming involved with John Robinson. Now, Nancy Robinson, John's wife, had to sell the family's big ranch-style home while John Robinson was away in prison and move into an apartment and then eventually into a trailer park where she'd gotten employment as the park manager. That's where Robinson was living with his wife after his release, also having an affair with the now-missing Beverly Bonner, who he fraudulently married during this time, and throughout the 90s, Robinson kept a low profile and managed to stay off the radar of police. That was until Suzette Trouton's family reached out to authorities in March of 2000. And after this, John Robinson's investigation began moving really quickly, not into his fraud or embezzlement, but into the disappearances of these women especially when they found out that Suzette's dogs had been roaming free in Robinson's trailer park. Now, during their investigation, detectives connected with a friend of Suzette's named Lore Remington, who lived in Canada and had struck up a friendship with Suzette online on a BDSM fetish website, where both Suzette and Lore were interested in a certain type of BDSM called Gorian BDSM, which was riskier than traditional BDSM in that the boundaries were less clearly defined and there was no safe words. Now, Laura revealed that Suzette had connected with Robinson on one of these sites originally, and the relationship had in fact begun as a master sex slave BDSM relationship rather than a business opportunity like Suzette had told her whole family. It was over the course of their online relationship that John Robinson had extended this job opportunity to Suzette and convinced her to move out to Kansas in 2000. The investigators learned that once Suzette had gotten there, Robinson made her sign a 25-page slave contract. And after keeping her in a room at a guest house suites for several weeks, she had one final conversation online with Laura Remington before the tone and style of her communications changed completely. And on that last day, the morning of March 1st, 2000, Suzette mentioned she was about to leave with JR, that's how she referred to John Robinson, on their trip around the world. And she was going to make one final stop Locally with him to his 16 acre Lacine farm. Learning all of this, investigators begin intensive surveillance of Robinson and they learned about multiple storage units he was renting. One was rented under the name Beverly J. Bonner. This is his ex-fake wife who had gone missing. And they also learned he was already flying other women out to Kansas and putting them up in rooms at the same extended stay hotel he put Suzette. So they set up a surveillance in the rooms surrounding those Robinson rented, ready to make a move if it sounded like any of the women were in serious danger. When the task force that had now assembled discovered Robinson was attempting to lure a divorced mother from Tennessee to come to Kansas with her child, also while working on a 17-year-old mother who was living out of her car. authorities decided it was time to act they arrested robinson and charged him with sexual battery and theft with robinson now in custody authorities executed search warrants on his multiple properties and they converged on his old farm in lacine where after searching the property for several fruitless hours detectives were close to giving up when something interesting caught their eye Were they about to finally discover the evidence they needed to prove John Robinson was not just a con man, but an actual serial killer living among them? Yes, they were. It was a pair of yellow 85-gallon steel drums tucked away behind an old trailer. Investigators were struggling to move these heavy barrels when one of them tipped over. A hair-thin streak of red liquid dripped down the side of the barrel. A fly landed on it almost immediately, And that's when investigators knew it was blood. So they pried open the barrel and were instantly knocked back by a pungent stench they knew all too well. Looking down into the barrel, they observed a bloated decomposing body curled up in a pool of waxy liquid. And in the second barrel were the badly decomposed remains of a second woman. Across the state line in Raymore, Missouri, authorities descended on Robinson's storage unit, the one rented under the name Beverly J. Bonner inside they discovered three more barrels these wrapped tightly in clear plastic and tape with kitty litter spread around them to absorb the odor when investigators worked the barrels opened they found three more decomposed bodies inside john robinson was so much worse than they imagined the medical examiner determined that all five victims had died from blunt force trauma probably inflicted by a hammer or something similar Initially, Robinson remained unaware of these discoveries. He believed he was in custody only for the sexual battery and theft charges. In fact, he said to the detectives, you guys are making a big deal out of this. But when they began asking him about Suzette Troughton, Robinson had nothing to say. And when they asked him about Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, and Lisa Stacy and her infant daughter, Tiffany, Robinson asked to speak to his attorney. Late one night that month, the phone rang at the home of Don and Helen Robinson. This is John Robinson's brother and sister-in-law. Remember, they're the couple that Robinson was supposedly trying to help adopt a baby when he kidnapped Lisa Stacey? On the other end of the phone was a detective from the Lenexa Police Department. In another room inside the house, the couple's 15-year-old adopted daughter, Heather, picked up the receiver and listened in on the phone call. It's about your brother, John, the detective said. He's been arrested and we feel he may be connected to Heather's mother. Now, Heather never had a good feeling about her uncle, John. He was one of those people that just gave off bad energy. It was the kind of bad energy that lurks just below a charismatic, friendly exterior. The kind of energy some can sense and others can't but Heather could sense it. The last time Heather had seen her uncle John was the previous year at a family wedding in Florida. While dancing with her uncle at the wedding party, he began to grind up against her and ask her questions about sex. Later that night, as the party wound down, her uncle John proposed that she move out of her parents' house and come live with him. He knew she was having some problems at home. He could set her up with a place, a new job, and give her a new life everything he had promised those other women. And it was a proposal that, as she grew more and more unhappy at home, Heather would seriously consider. But now Uncle John was in jail, accused of multiple murders, people that he lured out to Kansas using a similar promise to the one he offered her. And her parents were freaking out because Heather had been adopted in January of 1985, just a day after Lisa Stacy and her baby Tiffany, disappeared, which they were totally unaware of. John had had his brother and his sister-in-law fly into town on January 10th, 1985. He told him that he knew through his connections of a young mother who had taken her own life in a hotel room, leaving her baby behind in a shelter. Such a tragic story, he explained. And also that baby was available to adopt. So Robinson presented Don and Helen with a baby girl and adoption papers, a promise that had been months in the making. To Dawn and Helen, the papers looked legitimate. They signed them and adopted the infant, naming her Heather and raising her as their own. I know you know where this is going. Could it be that Heather was the long-missing Tiffany Stacy? By late June 2000, all five of the bodies found in those barrels in John Robinson's properties had been identified. They were identified as Suzette Troughton, Beverly J. Bonner, Isabella LaVisca, Sheila Faith, and Debbie Faith. Three new women that police knew nothing about. Isabella LaVisca was 18 years old when she dropped out of Purdue University and moved to Kansas to be with John Robinson, whom she would met online in a BDSM chat room. Robinson rented her an apartment and married her even though the marriage, like Beverly Bonner's, was phony. He was still married to Nancy. After a year or so, Robinson got tired of Isabella, so he hit her on the head with a hammer, stuffed her in a barrel, and told people around town who asked about her that she'd been caught smoking marijuana and was deported back to Poland. Now, Sheila Faith and her 15-year-old daughter, Debbie Faith, had not been seen or heard from since 1994, when Sheila told friends and family that she was moving to Kansas City to be with a man that she'd met online a wealthy Missouri businessman named John. Like so many other women that Robinson targeted, the faiths were vulnerable people. Sheila's husband had died from cancer, leaving her with very little money to raise and care for her daughter, Debbie, who had cerebral palsy. And she had hardly any income besides her monthly social security checks. Robinson promised to take care of Sheila and Debbie, buy Debbie a new wheelchair, help her ride horses, enroll her in a private school, and take the two women on trips around the world. Instead, he bludgeoned them both to death and continued to cash Sheila's social security checks for years, up until his arrest. What remained a mystery to investigators were the whereabouts of Paula Godfrey, Lisa Stacy, Tiffany Stacy, and Catherine Clampett. But that was about to change after investigators learned the adoption story behind Dawn and Helen's baby. And then DNA would establish beyond any doubt that Heather Robinson, John Robinson's niece, was Tiffany Stacy, the daughter of the missing woman he probably murdered. In Kansas, Robinson was charged with three counts of murder in the deaths of Lisa Stacy, Suzette Troughton, Isabella, and in Missouri, three more counts in the deaths of Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, and Debbie Faith. This was in addition to 56 counts of fraud and forgery, sexual battery, theft, and aggravated interference with parental custody. After more than two years of delays, the Kansas trial began in October 2002. Robinson's wife and children were among those sitting in the gallery. During the trial, the jury had shown a photo of John Robinson in January 1985, smiling with his brother Don and family with the newly stolen Tiffany Stacy sitting on John's lap, having been freshly delivered to his brother and sister-in-law. The prosecutors drilled down into Robinson's double life and how on the morning of Suzette Troughton's death, Robinson called his wife, Nancy, immediately after killing Suzette and was home by mid-afternoon to cook dinner. Prosecutor Paul Morrison would later describe Robinson as an eight to five serial killer in an interview with the Kansas City Star. After the jury deliberated, Robinson was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to death. Across the state line in Missouri, Robinson struck a plea deal in order to avoid a second death penalty. He pled guilty to the murders of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampitt, Sheila and Debbie Faith, and Beverly Bonner, though claimed he was unable to disclose locations of the bodies of Godfrey and Clampitt In a written statement in which he made up defamatory lies about his victims, claiming they were involved in sex work and drug trafficking, he claimed the bodies were disposed of in a landfill by a deceased accomplice. In Missouri, Robinson was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. In 2005, after 40 years of marriage, John Robinson's wife, Nancy, filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. Understatement of the century. John Robinson is still alive and currently sits on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Kansas. The ironic thing about John Robinson being from Cicero, the city of Al Capone, is that Robinson kind of embodies this new theory or concept that's been floating around called the Al Capone theory of sexual harassment. Although Robinson, just like Al Capone himself, is guilty of much darker crimes than just sexual harassment. But the Al Capone theory goes like this. People who engage in sexual harassment or assault are also likely to steal, plagiarize, embezzle, engage in overt racism, or otherwise harm the business they work for. All of these behaviors are the actions of someone who feels entitled to other people's property, regardless of whether it's someone else's ideas, work, money, or body. Another common factor is the desire to dominate and control other people. This is how it was described by Valerie Aurora and Lee Honeywell who first came up with this theory. And it applies to so many bad men. But you can see it so clearly in John Robinson who was bad to the bone, bad across the board. He embezzled, he stole, he lied about job qualifications which is another habit linked to the Al Capone theory, by the way. He impersonated others, he forged letters, he sexually harassed coworkers and neighbors. He sought to dominate and control and he abused and murdered women. Where there's one evil that rears its ugly head, there's often another one right behind it. And it was the internet that aided and abetted John Robinson's access to his victims. And he's not the only killer to do this. Tune in now to the next episode of Binged to learn about another killer who used the internet to prey on his victims.